0: Let's the Word of God together to the book of Acts, if you would find Acts chapter number 6 and verse 1. We're pausing in our journey through James because this is a special day where we're talking about church officers. We're recognizing the Lord's great work in the midst of His people. God has called out from among us men to be in positions of leadership and service, And in just a few moments, we're going to officially ordain them and install them in these positions. But the first thing we're going to do this morning is the most important thing. We're going to hear from the word of the Lord. And the Lord has a special challenge directed at us, and we need to listen to it as it comes to us from his inspired voice. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord, may his great name be praised. As we read this passage this morning, it unfolds in a time of rapid growth for the young Christian church in Jerusalem. Luke tells us here the author of Hebrews Luke tells us that or rather the author of Acts tells us that the disciples were increasing in number at this time the Lord was adding to his church and what's interesting is that the church was increasing rapidly even amidst great opposition and persecution we remember what Gamaliel had said earlier the Pharisee who had who had warned his fellow religious authorities that if they if they stood against the church bad things might happen. In chapter 5, he says, if their purpose, if the purpose of these apostles is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And so right he was. What was happening in Jerusalem was of God The gospel was spreading with amazing speed. The preached word was moving out from the apostles with courage and boldness. And they bathed their efforts in prayer, asking God to bless them with boldness, to preach the word even amidst opposition. And Jerusalem was being transformed by the gospel before their very eyes. And yet, despite all of those wonderful things, there was a time of difficulty, not only externally but internally. There was trouble brewing in the young congregation. And again, there's a disruption. They, they'd experienced the outward persecution by the religious authorities. In chapter 5, there was great internal corruption. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the members of the church who, who lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were, they, were, they were struck dead in their tracks in a dramatic display of the discipline God brings upon his own people and now it is not outward persecution or inner corruption it is what we might call discombobulation it is a commotion it is a distraction and what is interesting is that here is a new church It it is being served by the disciples. They are the pastors. The disciples of Jesus were the pastors of this church. These are the men who had walked and talked with our Lord. They had had seen all of the significant events in the life of Jesus. They They had listened to Jesus preach and teach, and they saw the miracle of all miracles, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and they heard the words from Jesus directed to their ears, go and be my witnesses. And these men are serving the church. And yet, there's trouble. They not only had the advantage of the disciples of Jesus as their pastors, they had experienced an extraordinary degree of fellowship. Just listen to this in Acts 2.42. You get a little insight into the fellowship of this church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And to prayer, those were good times. Acts 2.46, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was a good time. Acts 4.32, those who believed in the church were of one heart and soul, and abundant grace was upon them. And yet we come to chapter 6. And there's a potentially serious breach in the fellowship of the church. In verse 1, we are told there was a problem between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. And the problem was this complaint raised by Greek-speaking widows against the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking widows and their families. Some of the Greek widows were unintentionally being overlooked in the daily serving of food. What they did way back then was the church met together daily and they offered meals for the poor among them. It was a time of persecution. It had always been a time of persecution even for the Jews living in Jerusalem. And now the church is going to be persecuted, and there are many, many poor who've come into the church, many many needy. And so they had a ministry of food every day, and and for some reason, unintentionally, some of the widows were not being served their daily ration. These Hellenistic Jewish women had moved back to Jerusalem, having lived in far lands most of their lives. Years ago, their families had fled, their Jewish families had fled the persecution that was brought down upon the Jewish people, and now they've come back home to Jerusalem. But while they were away living in the Greek empire, they became immersed in the Greek way of life. They spoke Greek. Their ways of life were Greek. Their customs were Greek. And now they're back in the church of Jerusalem, and they're with native Hebrews who never left home. And so there's a cultural divide. There's a linguistic divide. One commentator notes that these Greek-speaking widows were under suspicion by reason of the fact that they were born, some of them elsewhere, some of them born in Jerusalem having moved, but they were more Greek than Hebrew, and their attitudes and outlook were more Greek than Hebrew. And since coming back to Jerusalem, they had become Christians, and now they're all together, but they're all different. And someone is being overlooked unintentionally, and there is this conflict. And it's a conflict among the widows, the most vulnerable of society, the ones commanded by the Word to be careful to take care of, the ones that Jesus so cared about. And spoke so often of those very fragile people and it is those widows who are being overlooked and they begin to complain. There is a complaint in verse 1. That's a word that means to murmur. Someone's being overlooked. Is it on purpose? Do they not like us? Will they not welcome us into the church? And so here's a problem. A problem of fellowship In the church, even in the first Christian church. Well, recognizing the potential disruption, the potential danger, in verse 2, the 12 apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples together to figure out what to do. How can we address this potential fracture in our fellowship? How can we address the disturbance of the peace and the unity of God's people? The problem for the apostles was one of of logistics and of priorities. It was impossible for the apostles to care for all the needs of all those people. Remember how big this church was. In Acts chapter 2, the first time Peter preached, there are 3,000 added to the church in one day. And then he preaches a second sermon, chapter 4, and 5,000 more men come in. This is a big church. And you have... Only a handful of pastors. There are too many people, too many issues, too many practical needs. And so the, the, the sheer magnitude of the need has, has overwhelmed the apostles. Logistically, but also in terms of priority. For their priority, their primary task is that of the word. And so they say this to the congregation in verse 2, it is, it is not good, it is not desirable that we neglect the word of God in order to serve these tables. If the apostles began to, to try to serve all the needs of the body, they would not preach the word, the ministry of the word would suffer, and if you don't have the ministry of the word, you do not have a church. Do you see that? That's why they're so passionate The church is created by the Word. The church is sustained by the Word. You may have a large congregation, but if you don't have the Word of God, you do not have a church. And so the church stands or falls upon the Word. And that's why they say we can't neglect the Word. We cannot neglect prayer. Those are fundamental, primary duties. We we need help. We need help. What is interesting... And you don't see this in the English translations. But what is interesting is that both the preaching of the word and the distribution of food are called ministries. And this is where our word deacon comes from, the all-purpose word for servant or ministry of service. The daily serving of food is a Ministry necessitated, necessitated by our condition and by our calling together into a common family called the church. We we bring our needs with us. We're a family. And the meeting of those practical needs is a necessity for the body of Christ. But then in verse 4, the ministry of the word, the word serving in verse 1, the word ministry in verse 4, same word. They are both essential. They are both tasks given to the church to to care for the very practical, material needs of God's people and to give them the Word are both essential. And here the the, the apostles recognize that, that it isn't one or the other. It is both. We must preach the Word and care for one another. We must preach the Word and meet each other's needs within the body of Christ. And you can't really have an effective, healthy, God-honoring, Christ-exalting church if you don't do both of those well. The Word preached first, and the practical needs of the people cared for secondly. They come up with a solution. The apostles, acting in the wisdom the Lord had Given them by his spirit, they summon the congregation together, and they give the congregation an order. Select from among you, brothers, seven men. Now, now not just seven men, but but seven men who meet certain criteria. There are characteristics, there are requirements for these seven men. And and look at what they are. This, This is really important, and it's interesting. First, they should be men of good reputation. The men who come alongside the apostles or the elders or the pastors should first be men of a good reputation. Literally, they must be witnessed about in a good way. That's literally the rendering. They they should be men who are frequently discussed as being truly good men. That's what's being said about these men. These are good men. The whole congregation should consider them to be devoted and pure and deeply serious about the things of the Lord and His church. These are men whom others can only speak well of. Secondly, they should be men who are full of the Spirit. That is, full of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, how would you know that? How would you know that they're full of the spirit well you see it you see the effects of the fullness of the spirit at play in their lives there's the clear and outward evidence that these men are under the authority of christ wherever the spirit is there you have the reign of jesus it is clear they are under the authority of christ because they are behaving like they're under the authority of christ They are displaying the unmistakable marks of being possessed by the Spirit, being ruled by Jesus. They are men under authority. Christ is Lord. They they manifest the fruit of the Spirit and especially love, the greatest gift and the greatest evidence of fruit, love, love, love. They are under the reign of Christ. They are full of the Spirit because these are men of excellent moral character and integrity. You, you don't have to wonder about what they do in their private moments. They are what they are. They are holy men. These men are easily identified as bond slaves of Jesus, full of the Spirit. Third, they're full of wisdom wisdom. Spirit-empowered wisdom. Dr. Ben Witherington, a New Testament authority, defines wisdom this way. Wisdom, biblically, is the ability to discern the right thing to do when choices must be made. It is not worldly wisdom. It is not being worldly wise, but is, it is to think as influenced by the Holy Spirit to think God's thoughts after him. These are men who are under the Spirit's guidance. They they will lead others to make choices that that honor the Lord and and accomplish His will. Now that's who you're to select, men like that. A bit later in the history of the church, Paul, as we've read this morning in our morning reading, will lay out more specifically the requirements. And what he's doing in 1 Timothy, he is telling us what it means to find men Good men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Here's what they look like they are dignified. They are not double tongued. They are not addicted to wine. They are not greedy. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They are true blue believers in Jesus. They are tested men and they pass the test. They are blameless. And their wives are dignified. They are not slanderers. Their wives are sober minded. Their wives are faithful. They are the husbands of one wife. They manage their homes well. These are the men who are full of the Spirit, good men, full of wisdom, who should take up the task assigned to them by the elders. Now, what's remarkable about that is this these are lofty standards. I mean they're way up there. These are these are these are these are high, high marks to achieve for men who are going to do nothing but wait on tables. Isn't that ironic? Such lofty standards for men who are going to do nothing but serve food. Why? Why such lofty standards? These men are not going to preach. They're not going to teach. They're not going to be spiritual leaders. They're not elders. They're they're, they're simple servants. Why do you need men of such lofty spiritual stature to do this? And here's where the kingdom of God is completely backwards to everything else. The reason you need men of such sterling spiritual quality to wait on tables, is because it takes a deeply spiritual, humble man to simply serve. It takes an extraordinary man, full of the Spirit, to serve in the shadows, to get no acclamations, to have no power, to have only the authority to serve. These men will be the church peacemakers. There's a disturbance. There's a conflict because we're all sinners. We're all humans. Every church has these things. And these men will come alongside the apostles or the elders, and they will bring peace to the congregation by serving. And it will take a manly man, a man full of the Spirit and wisdom to do such a lowly thing as serve in the shadows and that's the truth of the kingdom of god that's what jesus did he emptied himself he took on the forms the form of a bondservant he washed the disciples feet he served in the shadows he died a criminal's death on the cross and he saved the world and these men are to be like jesus they want no power no praise No spotlight. They simply serve. And it will take the Spirit of God in them. It will take all of the wisdom of God and the love of God for them to love the church enough to serve without the expectation of being served and to give without the expectation of receiving but to meet the needs as simple servants of Christ. And so they do that. They start thinking about who they can bring to the apostles, men like that, who will serve like Jesus served. In verse 4, they reiterate their main function, the apostles do. They say, while we have these men serving and taking care of the needs and being peacemakers, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The primary need of the church, the word of God in prayer. A secondary need, the practical ministry of the church. And the Lord will then bless his church to be all that she should be. Later on, Paul will again expand on the ministry required of elders and their character traits. They are too, uh, as well, to be men of Integrity and wisdom, apt to teach, doctrinal purity, love, humility, gentleness, not pugnacious, Paul says, not not a fighter, but a shepherd. And he will tell the elders what to do. The New Testament elders are to preach the word, he says. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul will tell Titus, as an elder, hold fast the faithful word, exhort in sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. The the word is given to the elders and the practical needs given to the deacons. And they work hand in hand to provide for the body of Christ. And she then is ready to accomplish her mission in the world. Well, they did that. The plan finds approval in verse 5 with the whole congregation. It makes sense. Everybody's happy with this structure of the church. And so in response, the people choose men who meet the requirements and they bring them to the apostles. And we have their names. And their names suggest that they're coming from the The Hellenistic side of the Jewish family, which would make sense, right? Because the problem started among the Hellenistic Jews. And so you have Stephen, and you have Philip, and Prochorus, Niconor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas. And they bring them to the apostles for final approval and commissioning and notice what happens the apostles pray they pray and they lay their hands on them they bless them and commission them for their work and they authorize them or they ordain them they officially recognize them that they are called out by God and 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 verified and 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 recognized by the congregation as having these these qualities and then they are deployed for ministry and what happens Three incredible things happen when they obey the Lord, when they structure the church according to the instructions of God. Some incredible things happen, and let's not go without, without observing these. Note number one, verse seven. This is really thrilling. The word of God kept on spreading. From life to life, from home to home, from village to village, the gospel, the word of God, the gospel of God, the word of salvation, the nourishing, life-giving word of the Lord goes forward. It blazes a trail. It is unstoppable. Literally, Luke writes, it kept gaining ground. The gospel was a great ground assault upon the world. And you could not stop it. The gates of hell would not prevail against the gospel. That, that's the result. And this is happening in a hostile religious and civil climate. And I just insert this as a word of encouragement. It does not matter who the president is or the king is or who holds the keys to the nation's laws, who occupies the Supreme Court or the king of any land, the gospel will not be stopped. Do you hear that? It will not be stopped. You can't chain up the gospel, cannot build a wall around the gospel. When God's people preach it, when the church announces it, When they live lives that the Lord enjoins us to live, the church wins. It is almost irrelevant who the king is if we stay on mission, and that's good news because the fate of the church does not lie in that little box you're going to enter on Tuesday. The future of the church is in the hands of the King. And it was then, and it is now. And despite the opposition, the gospel is grinding up ground after ground after ground. And it will leave Jerusalem and go into Samaria, and it will penetrate the furthest corners of the globe. That's what happened. Secondly, the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. With the gospel enjoying freedom of movement, more and more people are learning of Christ, believing upon him, and know the connection between the preaching of the word and the making of disciples. The apostles preached the word. The deacons assisted them in caring for the practical needs of the body, and more and more believe. The number of disciples began to grow right there under their feet, like it will here. Again, it's inevitable. The city of Jerusalem began to experience the fires of true gospel revival. And then a third result, and don't miss this one, verse 7. A great many of the priests, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, that's very significant. At any given time, there were over 8,000 priests in Jerusalem, They were the members of Israel's seemingly impenetrable religious establishment who did not believe in Jesus. They rejected what the apostles preached. They were hostile to the gospel. It was their job to be hostile to the gospel. And despite that... As the church properly ordered herself, as she maximized the preaching of the word, as they loved one another, even the impenetrable people, the people that you would think would never believe, they cannot run from the gospel. They come under the influence of the Word of God and some of these priests abandon Judaism. Imagine that. They lose their job. They lose their livelihood. They lose their integrity. They lose their their, their reputation. They lose it all. And they show up for church on Sunday. And they confess Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. What a thing that is. Unbelievable. But it happened. Why? Why? Because they preached the word, and they cared for one another. Do you see the simple beauty there? And do you see the beautiful simplicity there? That's a healthy church. It is very simple. The preaching and teaching of the word of God, and caring for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a healthy church. But it will never happen without good men who occupy these two offices of elder and deacon. Certainly God was glorified. Certainly the people were edified. And as we've just seen, indeed the world was evangelized. And there you have the plan to save the world. It is all about elders doing what they do and deacons doing what they do and the church standing together in unity around the cross. There is the plan. There is the great commission. Well, today this is a a very important moment in the life of our young church. In just a few minutes, we're going to do exactly what the church at Jerusalem did some 2,000 years ago. For we desire to preach the word and teach it, and we desire to care for one another. This morning we have a brother who will come before us, who's been identified as possessing the qualities required for a ruling elder, which are to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, uncontentious, and free from the love of money. And today, this dear brother is going to join the session, the ruling body of this church, where his task will be that of providing for the spiritual leadership of God's people. He will handle the Word as one of the elders charged with the teaching and the administration of, of the things of God, spiritual leadership. He will join a plurality of elders whose job it is to sound the word, teach the word, and govern the people under the spirit of God. But we also have practical needs in this body that must be met. And so in keeping with the biblical model, we've identified, you've identified some good men of good reputation, who we believe are full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who will come alongside the elders of God's flock and who will be set apart for their ministry and ordained to do what deacons should do. And we should expect God to move. We should expect that the Word of God will spread rapidly and will increase. We should expect that the church will be healthy and alive with spiritual power, that she will be unified. That when there are difficulties, we We will find peace in Christ as led by the officers. And we should expect that over time, in in the Lord's good time, a harvest of souls for his kingdom, and all of that for the glory of God. And that's what we're about to do. And that's why we're about to do what we're going to do, because this is the way the Lord's church is built. May God bless us as we move into our time where we will officially recognize these brothers and ordain them to the ministry God has called them to.